And welcome to yet another episode of Starpling Boy. Today's episode, we will have a casual and informal discussion about the next generation um, <clears throat> uh, episode called The Battle. And uh, I am joined by my guest, the doctor. Hello, doctor. Hello. Uh, another appropriate uh, action figure. Uh, is that Damon Bach or is that another? He, oh, actually, you know what? Let me check what the, uh, <coughs> the Falkert says. I, I think it's just a generic Ferengi. Yeah, I think it's just a generic Ferengi. Yes. You didn't uh, establish communications uh, with uh, Tarok Nor today. So uh, we are sans uh, Belle Scott. But uh, I did speak to Galdu Scott over uh, over uh, subspace telegraph, and uh, he uh, will join us on the next episode, hopefully. <laughs> did Did you get any indication as to whether or not he enjoyed the episode or not? I did not get an indication, um, but it's a Ferengi episode, so I imagine that he uh, found some amusement in it. <laughs> I'm sure. <clears throat> so, a quick quick little summary of the episode um, uh, you know the enterprise is on its way on its merry way and it's uh, suddenly uh, the we uh, wish to make some kind of uh, have talks for peace basically or some kind of settlement between the Federation and the Ferengi and the representative is uh, Damon Bach <clears throat> and uh, they rendezvous and everything's a little bit too friendly um, Picard imagines and, and the crew, uh, but Damon Bach beams aboard and uh, and then provides uh, Captain Picard with a very with a surprise gift. Um, but before that, uh, you know, <laughs> there's this kind of like interesting thing about this episode where uh, we <clears throat> definitely get the impression that. Um, Captain Picard uh, doesn't like to talk about his past too much, so now we're kind of like sub, you know, submerged into his past. And um, anyways, the the gift ends up being a starship, a constellation class starship called the USS Stargazer, which was Captain Picard's previous command, and it was lost. He had to scuttle the ship, um, but uh, it's now turned up again. Um, and then Captain Picard goes into uh, this kind of like um, trance that's induced by uh, Damon Bach using uh, forbidden technology uh, and he thinks he's back in the past, boards his ship and attacks the Enterprise. <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty simple simple story. <clears throat> what I like, what I think that stands out about the episode to me is definitely uh, the the story of Picard's uh, previous command, and you know some of the performances, and an intriguing uh, view as uh, into this Ferengi captain and revenge, and there's a lot of lot of stories there. What do you What did you think of the episode? I, I thought it. I thought I've always liked it. I thought it was really good. It's the. It seems to be the first episode uh, in this season that doesn't seem to uh, somehow in any way mine episodes from the original series. Uh, you know, most of the episodes we've seen so far 
somehow take a page from the original show from previous episodes, you know, from episodes in that show. But this one, you know, there, there was never an episode on the original series where you had something about, uh, you know, well, obviously Kirk's first, I mean, the Enterprise is Kirk's first command, right? So he never, he, he could never have had a, a first, you know, a first ship. Um, uh, you never had anything about, you know, Scotty's first ship or Spock's. Right, anything like that, like it, it, and also the issue of revenge. We never saw uh, in the original series anybody take revenge on the original, uh, on Kirk or on Spock. To, I mean, that I'm aware of right now. So I thought it was, huh? Not in the at least not in the first season. Um, I think there might be. I have a weird recollection, but nothing specific. But yeah, you're right. On the original series, yeah. Someone, but- Nothing specific. We'll have to do some research on that one. Okay. Well, I don't recall an episode like that. So this episode seemed very original in light of what we've seen before. And I think it was a good showcase for, for Picard. And, um, it, like it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely a very Picard, uh, centric episode and a great way for us to explore more about his character. And, uh, I liked how, I liked the way he just casually, Talks about the Picard maneuver like it was nothing. <laughs> and, and everybody at the table, and your Riker's there with a smile on his face, like, you know, but that that's in the that's in the the textbook. You know, we study it now. And Picard's just there with a pen, and he's just, yeah, we just did this, we did this, we did this. It was nothing. <laughs> so um, I think what's interesting is, you know, up to now we've seen a lot of Picard's. Um, we've seen a lot of the explorer in Picard. You know, the differences between Picard and Kirk are very interesting. You know, Kirk was very into the running of the ship, being the captain. But I never really got a sense that he was into exploration itself. But he liked being captain of the Enterprise. I don't know if you agree or not. But that's my impression of Kirk. Now, Picard is definitely into exploration. We see that throughout the series. And we've seen it up until now. But what's interesting in this episode is now we see the reluctant warrior. Uh, he's got a very canny military uh, strategic mind, which later we'll see uh, pay off against the Borg. And, uh, but it's definitely a reluctant warrior. It's not, you know, he's not someone who actively uh, engages in strategy and all this stuff. It just kind of, you know, he'll do it if he needs to, but he likes to be an explorer first. I think, um, <clears throat> I think you're absolutely right, um, except I do disagree about uh, Captain Kirk not being an explorer. I just think he's more of a swashbuckler, a swashbuckling explorer than, than Picard's more of a traditional, like what you imagine, you know, uh, Sir Edmund Hillary type person, whereas uh, Captain Kirk, I think, is more like uh, the fic- the fictional captain in uh, Master and Commander. <laughs> you know, he's like more of a. You're right. He's more of a uh, explore through explore through adventure, and uh, he's an adventure seeker for sure. Captain. He's an adventurer, but he's not the you know, Picard. <laughs> You can get the sense that he enjoys collecting the data, cataloging the stuff, 
Kirk is more interested in commanding the ship, obviously, yes, in the spirit of adventure and exploration, but that's not his thing. His thing is being captain of the Enterprise. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, if so it were being captain of the Enterprise in another, uh, in service to another idea, he would still enjoy being captain of the Enterprise. And you definitely get the impression that Captain Picard looks at the Enterprise as a prestigious command, but at this point, he's not necessarily, you know, as as immersed as we see Captain Kirk, where Captain Kirk, it's like when he becomes an admiral, the one, th he, you know, he's all of a sudden like a hollow shell of what he used to be. And, you know, Bones advises Kirk, you know, get back your command, do what you know best. And so Kirk was destined to be captain and specifically the captain of the enterprise it's a very unique story i guess in the history of the the federation and you know even perhaps in in a in naval tradition like you don't expect someone to be that attached to a command where you know where you see kirk um this episode starts with an interesting scene um you know after the after the captain's log um <clears throat> there's a medical examination being conducted because Picard has a headache, something that apparently is very uncommon <laughs> in the 23rd century because Dr. Crusher, uh, she's a little surprised. She's like, I haven't seen a headache in a long time. <laughs> and these headaches are kind of like the mystery of the episode. Uh, he experiences them throughout the episode and we later discover the source of the headaches. And then uh, there's a there's another Wesley an interesting fun Wesley moment that occurred, where uh, he kind of interrupts, runs onto the bridge, and says, uh, "Commander, you're going to get an intruder alert warning." And sure enough, there's an intruder alert warning. And then he's the one who also points out that there's a ship coming in on the long range sensors, which happens to <clears throat> which happens to be the Stargazer. Um, and it was nice. I. I, it was nice to see um, an old-style ship. Yeah. The bridge is, is from the Reliant, right? I think so, or it's something similar. It's a redress of the Reliant. Yeah, it's very and nice. The graphics from Star Trek uh, from Star Trek 2 and Star Trek 3, which is really cool. Right. Well, definitely Captain Picard was commanding the uh, <clears throat> Stargazer uh, post-Star Trek VI. I mean, he would have been a cadet still, I think. Yeah. In that time, or even maybe even just a teenager. Um, but the Stargazer's a nice-looking ship. It's got that cool... It has a saucer section, and then it has uh, four nacelles. Um, mm -hmm. And it's a, you could tell it's a heavy cruiser of some kind, and, you know... Uh, could take a licking and also, uh, you know, go pretty pretty far. I really like that design. And then you see it later on with the update, you know, with the kind of the cooler new nacelles. You see other ships that are kind of similar to the Stargazer. Mm -hmm. But in the Enterprise-D configuration, in the Galaxy-class kind of configuration, which is neat too. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if I... I think it. I think the thing that um, surprises me is that like uh, Damon Bach is being awfully uh, friendly and and you know un you know and very suspicious, uh, and Wesley you know he's pointing out these things and uh, the crew isn't really listening to him, 
there, in fact, in that scene where he points out the uh, um, the intruder alert, Picard kind of admonishes him and says, you know, Mr. Crusher, and he's right. I think Picard's right. He's like, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, you could have called this in from engineering. You may have risked by running up here to, to, to like... You know, it was stupid on his part. I don't know why he did that. It was like, oh, we need to include... Yeah, I mean, that, that was... Picard's absolutely right in that. <laughs> Wesley's stupid. Oh, my gosh. This is so mean to Wesley. <laughs> scene, it's true. But yeah. also, Wesley also kind of figures out that there's some kind of um, there's some kind of uh, frequency that matches very closely uh, Captain Picard's abnormal brain patterns, um, and helps the doctor and Counselor Troy put two and two together to figure out that he's under uh, mind control. He's being you know controlled by this uh, device. The 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 um, where that device came from is never explained. Like, no, I don't. Has that technology? I bet it's the. Uh, <laughs> I bet it's the. Uh, you know, the Frankier traders, and they're always getting right. So they must have gotten it from somebody else. <laughs> Could be Romulans. I'm gonna guess it's Romulan because it's it's a strange little. It's like this thing that's like, you know, he's he's like. It's basically a sphere, and it has like these like kind of kind of like adjustments on it, and um, it's hokey looking. It is. It's not exactly the best uh, device. There are a lot of moments in this episode where we see Picard very vulnerable, though, and I thought that was very well acted and kind of amusing, actually. It's a little hokey as well. What did you think of all these scenes where Picard's struggling to keep his uh, his thoughts and his mind together? Well, I, I, I really liked, uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I liked first is I liked the directing of the episode. It was Rob Bowman again. And um, I lo- the opening, like you mentioned before, uh, when he was doing his, uh, his captain's log, you know, it starts on that shot of the, of the aquarium, of the fish, and you, and you get this, this really interesting angle of Captain Picard's uh, quarters. And... Um, I thought that was really, I thought, you know, little shots like that were really good. And then later on when, um, when Picard has, uh, he's on the Stargazer and he's beamed off the Enterprise, he's gone to the Stargazer and, he's, and you see those ghostly images of his crew at the end. Uh, I was actually reading here and that's the first uh, use of Steadicam on Next Generation. Oh, okay. It was done by um, it was done by Rob Bowman, and uh, so I, I thought I thought the episode had had you know interesting directorial touches. I wish they had used the red um, military style uniforms for that scene for the but the crew the flashback crew were wearing uh, the current the updated uh, uniforms. Yeah, I guess, I guess it makes you wonder how long they've been using those uniforms. It, I get the impression it's not that long, but maybe it is longer than we thought. Also, I did like another detail when the when the Stargazer actually executes the Picard maneuver. They use the uh, classic warp drive effect. The warp effect <clears throat> was the classic warp effect. Yeah. Nice touch. And it says something about like maybe the engine's 
create these like spectacular phenomenon based on how they work and those those nacelles and engines make this rainbow streak as opposed to the Enterprise D, which just kind of like <laughs> stretches and yeah, that's, that's stretch Armstrong thing. Like. <laughs> it's like a rubber band. Yeah, I've never really been a fan of that. I love I like it. more of the Star Trek movies. You know, the little shimmer and rainbow. Yeah, I like the shimmer and the the rainbow streaks. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, they are like cool. <clears throat> but I also I understand that like you can't really just do that. Uh, it's probably it probably costs a lot of money to to do that effect. <laughs> I guess. I guess. Um, or it probably did. I wonder if there is a an official reason behind the change, other than aesthetics and like updating. You well, know? the engines are different, so maybe different engines have different. Uh, um, as as you make adjustments to the warp, they produce different uh, yeah effects. Right. Right. But uh, going back to Picard's, uh, Patrick Stewart's performance, I, I thought it was really good. I think, um, you know, there, he, uh, he, he, he doesn't look like someone who engages in much nostalgia. Uh, I mean, he says it himself. I haven't thought of this in years. Yeah, he, does, he hasn't thought of it in years. Um, I like the scene when they first board the Stargazer because you do see on his face, like, a genuine, like, you know, like he's back home in a sense, like, um, mm-hmm. and I think that like, you know, it was, it was something that he regretted, which have, you know, having to scuttle the ship and then it's, he thinks it's just lost out there and then to have found it. Yeah. Also, I was, I was struck by, um, the other character who I think made an interest, uh, kind of stood out was Riker. Um, in these early episodes of Next Generation, I think the show is still trying to decide, not trying to decide, but they go, they're trying to navigate the idea that the main character may be split in two. You know, in the original show, Kirk was the captain. He did all the captain stuff. But on this show, you have two people really doing the captain stuff because Riker's the one that goes down on the planet Riker's the one who does the action, but you have Picard on board the ship making the decisions and maybe doing some of the, you know, this is some other stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And in this episode, we see Picard is, is vulnerable, as you said. And then they had those scenes where Riker was speaking to the first officer on the Ferengi ship. He's the one that figures out, wait a minute, there's something unusual here with this Ferengi captain. Yeah. Being so generous. And and I, I thought it was interesting that, you know, they gave that to Riker to kind of, you know, so he's still in the picture. He's still somehow driving something of the plot with I, his uh, speaking to the first officer on a secure channel, one-to-one, and, and the way he kind of, uh, and he picks up on it right away because he says something like, wow, you guys... Uh, uh, gave away a bargain or something, and 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 the first officer was like, <laughs> the the first officer Kazago was I thought actually a great. The Ferengi are different in this episode than when we first meet them. They're a little bit more like the DS Nine, you know. They're heading more in the direction of like not just like kind of like um, they're less bumbling and humorous um, in a slapstick kind of way. I think here that, that they're more sophisticated and 
Uh, I like that they they present the Ferengi this way. Um, the actor who plays the um, the captain of the Ferengi, Damon Bach, he's actually also. I read that he also comes out comes back on Voyager. Like he's another another. He plays another Ferengi on Voyager. Really. Yeah, and apparently another nefarious, <laughs> you know, like a nemesis type uh, Ferengi. Uh, I guess when we get to Voyager, we'll find out. You won't be there, but. <laughs> yeah. um, what, what did you guys say about the Ferengi in the first episode? What what conclusions did the two of you reach about the Ferengi and how they were introduced? I think that was it, is that they weren't introduced as like, they were introduced as like these kind of like beings that, um, just uh, you know, traded for technology, but didn't have like the advanced uh, sort of mindset to handle this technology. So they're you know they're they're like an example of what could happen if you uh, if you come into technological advancement without having a more advanced um, mindset or approach uh, from a, from your you know from your ethos. So here you have these like traders who are only interested in profit, who now all of a sudden you know, can travel through the stars. So there's a lot of, like, <clears throat> misunderstanding, hot-headedness, you know, things like that. And here you get a different kind of Ferengi. You can already start to see the change. And I think Quark is the best representative of what I think a Ferengi should be like. You know, sophisticated, but also still, you know, culturally they're profit-driven, right? So there's all these interesting kind of like things, I guess, much like the human slash federation um, uh, have the prime directive as their leading example of how to act. Uh, the Ferengi have probably a similar one that have, you know, the rules of acquisition. The rules of acquisition. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's like, right. The, right. you know, those are things that are starting to appear into the Ferengi and make them more interesting that we didn't get at all. In the um, in the first episode, uh, I thought that in, that the meeting on the bridge was pretty cool too because uh, they beam over, and Captain Picard introduces Riker as his first officer, and then he introduces Troy as his second in command. No, no, Data oh. is third in command, and then he introduces the counselor. And while we're on the subject of Troy, I'm going to have my <laughs> my bashing Troy moment here. Oh, yeah. I really hated the moment. When um, they they initiated contact with the Ferengi, and Damon Bach suggests, he says, "Well, you can either come over here or we come over there." And Troy turns around and gives him gives this this order to Yar. <laughs> I was like, "Who the hell is she to do that?" How dare she do that to Yar? Like, who the, who the fuck is she? No offense with the F word there. But I'm like, I, 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 thought, I thought that was just, I still don't understand where the ship's counselor rests on the ship's hierarchy. It doesn't, under, I, I, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I was kind of surprised by, well, by that. It, and, it's very interesting. I think she falls under the medical partly under medical because um, Dr. Crusher points out in this episode that she's the only person that can on the ship that can relieve Captain which, Picard. Which dates back to the original show. Of duty, right. Well, and I think that's a, like, if there is, um, if there's a medic, if there's medical personnel, I don't know if this is true for current Navy. Not um, sure. Here. Oh, really? I don't know. 
Oh, okay. I don't know if it's true if the if Star Trek gets this from, you know, uh, military procedure that's that's uh, you know U.S. naval or or other naval procedures. Oh, you know, it could be true on a submarine because I think that's the only situation where you would actually just be so isolated because they go for those tours of duties where you're essentially cut off. So the doctor would be able to relieve a sub a submarine. Yeah, because on I mean, again, <laughs> this is not going on. This is going on the hunt for Red October now, which I don't know if it's a legitimate story. But isn't the doc? Isn't uh, what's his name? Um, oh yeah, Tim Tim Curry, right? Tim like, Curry, right? He's <laughs> one of the yeah. So I'm going. I'm basing this on another Paramount product. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so but it makes sense, you know, like it you, does. It does make sense. Uh, so the doctor does establish that. I think that Counselor Troy doesn't have those powers, but um, probably she can advise the doctor and say, you know, with her special unique abilities, coupled with the fact that she's, you know, the ship psychologist, she can say, hey, um, Dr. Crusher, I don't think the captain's fit for duty. And then Dr. Crusher will really... No, but, but my thing was when she gave the order to Yar, the captain of the ship is engaged in communication with the with, with another ship, and she takes action without even notifying him, without, like, tapping him on the shoulder. She just turns around and directly orders Yard to cut off communication and then and then says the obvious. Captain, I sense, uh, you know, uh, deception, and I'm like, duh. Well, okay, so I think that that's a great... Um, a great difference though and like i think this is a, a prelude to something we see later on with the next generation crew in general the uh, captain picard's style of command is a little bit more um he, while he does enjoy procedure and structure i think he's you, we're starting to see like how much he trusts his bridge crew and you know the core core group and so he might be a little annoyed or perturbed by this but i think in the end he realizes, you know, the counselor did this. Um. No, he doesn't appear to be perturbed at all. I'm the one that's perturbed. <laughs> I'm annoyed. I just, I just thought that was a breach of protocol, and and it just seemed like it was perfectly okay with everybody. And and obviously, you know, Troy. I mean, I understand Troy is beta as she has enhanced powers, but I'm I'm assuming that ship's counselor is something that exists on other ships. And my question is, do other counselors also get this uh, this authority that she does? I, I don't think so. We, we don't really see a ship's counselor having as much of a um, role anywhere else on Star Trek, as far as I know. Um, no, not at all. This, this is the first time, so I wonder if it is a unique, a unique position to the Galaxy-class um, exploration vessel. Or this oh, you think mission. it's only for Galaxy-class vessels? Or maybe it's just for this mission. You know this particular mission they are going out into uh we have to remember that like they're going out into what's roughly uncharted space you know but it's interesting on um, i mean I, I hate to to bring up voyager but um voyager seemed to have no ship's counselor so i'm wondering if they considered the ship's counselor just uh or at least the idea of the ship's counselor on the bridge a failed experiment because uh, the Voyager was meant to go out into deep space, and they certainly have 
no council and made no attempt to appoint a new one because you, I mean the argument can be made that the ship's council was was killed right because now they lost a lot of life in the pilot but then Janeway made uh, uh, efforts to well okay whoever whomever we have from the marquee they will fill in the empty slots left and nobody said oh we need someone for the ship's counselor let's get Kess but right. uh, yeah. it was not. It, it was it was not something that was felt it was needed. So it is it it does again it does seem pretty unique to the Enterprise D crew and like this mission. So yeah, you're you're probably right. Maybe it wasn't something that Starfleet necessary, or maybe Captain Picard requested it because maybe he realizes that um, you know there's value in having a ship's counselor. I don't know. I'm not sure. I I do believe that the. I do believe ship's counselors probably exist on on other ships, but they probably aren't as uh, integral to the. They're not bridge crew. I don't think so. You know, I I don't know. Maybe the first officer does the job, or the doctor does both. You know, it's a it's no. Like, there's a there's a ship's psychologist in uh, the original show. Oh. Um, in the second pilot, remember. Sally Kellerman, the blonde, is the ship's psychologist. When Gary, uh, what's his name? When the guy gets the godlike powers, Kurt's right, right. Oh, calls the ship's psychologist because he's having trouble. He's having Q problems. <laughs> he's, you know, so he calls the ship's psychologist and it's her. But, you know, so I, I don't know if, if, if maybe uh, Roddenberry remembered that <laughs> and said oh we had a ship's council you know like in the original pilot and that was something we just never developed and he thought well you know let's now that we're now we have a second shot at this let's do it the way i originally intended i don't know I'm, I'm, i would be curious to know i'm i'm curious as to so like <laughs> talking about ship's protocol when they beamed over the captain's belongings from the stargazer no one thought to do a security <laughs> no. check no one checked. No, no. like, oh, you know, maybe we should just do a security check on this and, and make sure there's nothing weird in here. And like, it was pretty big. The 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 sphere. I'm surprised Picard didn't find it himself. Yeah, well, I mean, he, didn't have, he didn't have a chance to look through his thing. No, he looked a little bit through it. Oh, that's Remember, he picked something up. He's looking at an old yearbook or something, and <laughs> and and then all, there's this gigantic glowing sphere that he manages to miss. <laughs> of course, he is tormented by a headache, so, <laughs> you know. I do like that the Battle of Maxia is, like, in the history books already, and um, Captain Picard, you know, the Picard maneuver, which we touched on earlier, I thought that was a pretty cool scene establishing, as you said, Captain Picard as, you know, having a, uh, a strong military and strategy, you know, background as well. Yeah. Not as evident in his day-to-day -day character. Um, and that was a good scene also where he is, you know, kind of recalling, you know, and kind of, and he just kind of says, well, it's a necessity. And then later on, um, <laughs> later on when, when he's totally under the influence of this mind control device and back on the stargazer and he's about to initiate the Picard maneuver, I thought it was kind of funny because, uh, you know, uh, Riker says, well, what's the defense strategy? And Data says, there is no defense against the Picard. 
<laughs> and so Data has to formulate one in like a few seconds. And it has the virtue of like, you know, when a kid is trying to punch you and you just hold their head. <laughs> like this, and they're taking swings at you. And, and so that was like the solution basically is they tractor beam the Stargazer out in front of the Enterprise. And so it's able to do very little <laughs> damage. <laughs> to, the, uh, to the Enterprise. But then here, Riker actually breaks through. Oh, so like that was kind of an interesting thing. You know, the, his appeals to the first officer apparently worked because the first officer does some investigation and, um, and then uh, detains the Damon Bach. Um, the first officer's name was Kazago, I think, right? Kazago. And so Kazago detains Damon Bach and, um, you know, informs Riker uh, of this and then wishes him luck. Um, basically, you know, and, and I like his reasoning for detaining him. He's like, for uh, for unprofitable venture. <laughs> like, <laughs> I got the impression that the door was left open for that Ferengi first officer to come back, maybe as a captain. And then it would have been, there could almost have been maybe a plot where, uh, there could have been a, a, a plot where Riker would have said, well, you know, you owe me your captaincy because I'm the one that cleared Damon Bach off the, the you know, uh, off the ship for you and you took over. Like yeah. it could have been, it would have been an interesting relationship if the Ferengi had been um, successful, which obviously they weren't on the <laughs> generation. They weren't, yeah, but th we do still get some Ferengi episodes in later seasons. I mean, they do keep coming back. And um, I did like the humor. Uh, there was some humor that was uh, that stood out when uh, Kazago, uh, he says, as you humans say, I'm all ears. That was funny. That was pretty funny. Um, um, go ahead. So, yeah, no, they were, they were interesting. Again, more, more, they were fleshing the Ferengi out more, and I thought that was really interesting. Um, <clears throat> and so then that's it. Uh, oh, well, well, anyways, Captain uh, Commander Riker breaks through um, and signals uh, Picard and then kind of gets him to wake up out of his mind control spell for a minute to notice the silver sphere. And, um, and <laughs> I thought this was a little too dramatic. Like, he's kind of, you know, he's like staring. I mean, the phaser? Yeah, and then he blasts it and then there's this huge explosion that knocks him off his feet yeah and, and i thought that was like a little dramatic uh but it, i thought it was great <laughs> <laughs> um i want to get back to the, if you don't mind i want to get back to the ferengi I, I i was doing some thinking about the ferengi and the success and you know failure of the ferengi and, um, you know, I was thinking, you know, what is it about the Klingons that made them so successful? And I know that now we, the popular uh, thinking is that they are surrogates for the Soviets back then, especially after Star Trek VI. But I would wager that it's not just that, but the Klingons also represent um imperialism and roddenberry was making a case that the klingons were not an adversary of the u.s 
the Klingons were a representation of what the U.S. could become if they gave into their imperialistic tendencies, if they didn't become more involved in world affairs like through the United Nations, which is basically what the Federation is, right? Right. So if we take that, then we look at the Ferengi and we have to think, well, what were they think? What was Roddenberry thinking? What was the existential threat that the Ferengi represent to the U.S. rather than rather than them being uh, a surrogate for some country or whatever in our world? And I think it's definitely capitalism and giving into uh, you know be, uh, giving into to pure capitalism. And and I, I thought that was very interesting because that um, it, it, I guess the show just wasn't. I guess the, the show writers just didn't really know how to articulate that in 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 effective plots for next generation because I mean it's 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 easier to turn you know uh, imperialism into plots you know as they did through the Klingons but to turn the idea of capitalism as something that you you should not capitalism but pure capitalism like you know unchecked capitalism into a threat. I think is a lot harder, and uh, and it's interesting because you know the we've seen we've seen a lot up until now, you know little lines of dialogue here and there saying that you know the Federation doesn't use money and and this and that so sort of setting up the idea that the economics of the Federation are are very different and don't rely on capitalism. You know people right. do things for it's it's uh, it, it's almost like. Uh, the Ferengi are, are the ultimate, uh, the ultimate mutant manifestation of Trump. You know, I mean, they're just some interesting, uh, interesting uh, uh, thoughts there um, and parallels. I agree with you. Um, it, the Federation and citizens of the Federation are is interesting because what what has happened though is that humans, which are kind of like, you know, one of the core races of the Federation, um, <clears throat> until the formation of the Federation, humans were still struggling, I think, um, with many of the um, perils of uh, resource management and, you know, capitalism, you know, things that come with capitalism. Um, and when the Federation was created, you know, with the Vulcans and, like, these other... Um, other uh, species. Now you had a way to. You, yet now you were exposed to a different way of of life, and I think the the Vulcans were probably you know chief influencers in that. You get the impression that on Vulcan there is no no commerce or trade uh, that has to do with exchange of money. Vulcan seems to Vulcans seem to have evolved uh, their consciousness and their thought and their mindset to a, a place where. You know, there is like it. It is a very like um, socialistic model, if you will. Um, you know, where where the basics are all provided for, provided for, and given, uh, and that has to do with technological advancement. There are some things that are happening in uh, in real life that uh, that offer uh, glimpses into perhaps a future that is un not unlike Star Trek. Now, you know, if we crack the uh, the problem of of energy, um, and you know, if nuclear fusion is very promising, and if nuclear fusion 
uh, is a successful experiment and becomes a, a technology, that's going to revolutionize uh, electricity and power. You know, it's going to be something that that will change uh, a lot of people's lives. Um, you'll be able to do things that you couldn't do before because you'll have access to more energy, so to speak. Um, you know, the ubiquitousness of computing technology uh, is another thing that is shaping and helping to change humanity. And it's like, you know, when I was, um, when I was a teenager, there were very few, um, <clears throat> there were very, very few families that had computers. Uh, and now I, you know, think that lots of families have a computer at home or some kind of computing device because they've become so much more affordable. And you can kind of see this, you know, rolling into a point where, like, the things that we, you know, the things that we do, like mining, uh, you know, dangerous jobs, like dangerous careers that, you know, humans put themselves into risk and peril. And, you know, and it creates this inequality. It's like, why, well, you know, a miner, for example, is doing an extremely dangerous job, but their reward is not, it doesn't seem equal to their efforts, you know? Um, you don't see miners, you know, more, most stories of people that are in the mining industry end up with some, them suffering some kind of like disease that ends their life early. And that's still a problem today. It's not as big a problem as it was, you know, uh, 50, 60 years ago, but it's still a problem. Another thing is like, you know, here we have, we all agree on an individual basis that like education is probably the most important um, societal uh, feature and should be heavily invested in and should be, uh, you know, something that's provided for all, yet you have many problems of access to education. And then on top of that, um, teachers make an obscenely low amount of uh, money uh, and then have to <laughs> have to teach more students than, than they can be effective with, you know, yes. and so... So, you know, there are these social issues that, like, you can see if they're handled or solved across the globe, not just for the United States, but everywhere in the world, that it could be a revolution for humanity. It could, you know, it could change humanity in, in profound ways. And again, on an individual basis, I, I've encountered, you know, most people agree with that. But for some reason, society's slow moving to make these things happen. Um, and I think that's what the Ferengi kind of are, you know, are representative of is like a yeah. solution that only focuses on commerce and trade and, you know, and, and you see this actually funny enough in Deep Space Nine when Keiko is trying to establish her school, Rom doesn't want to send Nog to school because he's like, well, he's, you're not going to teach him anything useful. He needs to learn about um, commerce and like, you know, trading and absolutely things like that. And then Keiko kind of like poses the idea, well, imagine how much of an advantage um, Nog will have knowing about other civilizations. And she like is able to convince him that education is in fact a benefit um, and will help him, you know, to succeed. So I do agree with you. I think what the Ferengi represent really is, um, Capitalism gone. Has been um, uh, 
analysts and people who kind of look at history and then look at, you know, projections for the future. And they, they, they do think that like, there has to be a balance between, you know, pure capitalism and Spot on. all these Spot things. On. I think that um, moving into the future, all the old sort of, um, all the old sort of ideas we have and like categorizations we have, they just don't work anymore. I mean, like, you know, people are hung up on like socialism and capitalism and like thisism and thatism when I think a, a true solution is more of a balanced solution that has a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that we're at a point in, in, in a point in time where we need to really kind of like reevaluate this personally, you know, personal feeling is like reevaluate these constructs and our attachments to them, you know, right. like we're so attached to these words like capitalism and socialism and communism. And it's like all these like meanings that are behind them. And when, you know, we've seen enough governments kind of like try things and, and, and fail and the most successful um, the most successful societies seem to be ones that don't really define their system and don't really say you know oh, they are inclusive they're inclusive oh, yeah. yeah and obviously like democracy is like a very compelling mm-hmm. and good way I mean like people having a say in their uh, in their society's direction is very important so that I think is like a good foundation to build on, but as far as capitalism and socialism is concerned, I think, you know, there needs to be a new paradigm or a new, a new kind of, uh, commerce social model that, that works for everyone. And, you know, I think I'm happy to, if I were, um, if I were, uh, and, you know, if I were like a, a captain of industry of some kind, I would definitely want to reinvest in you know my society and you know make sure that like future workforces met the kind of could meet like the kind of uh demands that are going to be coming up with technology uh becoming more and more of a daily um a tool to help us live our lives absolutely and and i i think it's a real testament to roddenberry's vision you know uh that i mean this episode i mean you know, why does Star Trek hold up? You know, you can rewatch these episodes and they still speak to something relevant today. And the fact that he could see the, uh, I mean, uh, the, the, the Ferengi seemed like something that today, if they were to, to create the Ferengi today, I think it would be uh, a more viable uh, race, let's say, on Star Trek. I think now we have writers who are more capable of, of, of writing stories um, complex enough to, well, like DS9. DS9, the Ferengi came off very well. But the Ferengi were a good concept. Um, And I I think they had a good concept grounded in in that criticism of pure capitalism. I think Roddenberry demonstrated uh, a great amount of vision in knowing that was what was coming, that was the thing coming around the coming around the band that was the the thing that we needed to in in some ways face in order to become this great future that he envisioned which we're still on that path aren't we i mean we we are still on the road to achieving one day what roddenberry envisioned i hope yeah yeah i i i believe it and I, i think all trek fans 
believe that as well. And, and I think Trump's a Ferengi. Uh, <laughs> but, um, and then the second Trump thing I want to say. Trump is definitely a Ferengi. And as a matter of fact, as he, uh, as he is more outspoken about his beliefs, you can see his, his image transforming. Uh, he looks a lot like a Ferengi. <laughs> looks a little like a Ferengi, doesn't he? Which brings me to my other point, which is the actual design of the Ferengi. I don't know how into the design of the Ferengi you guys got into when you discussed the other episode, but I, I think um, I think part of the part of the issue with the Ferengi is the design. And I think specifically the pot, their posture when they first beamed aboard the ship, you know, they have that hunched over, um, kind of, you know, they, they have these strange body motions and the snarls and all that. And I just, I just, it just comes off as very comical. I don't see how they didn't see that. I know. I'm not sure what the intention is, except for again, going back to, uh, you know, one imagines that human humans, uh, like you know, kind of like uh, Cro Magnon type humans, are like, you know, probably exhibited similar uh, posture and like these like growls and snarls, more animal than <clears throat> more like. Always come off as being comical. Yeah, that's why you never see. You know, that's why we don't have this plethora of Cro Magnon. And the Anderson movies because right. they unless they're comedies, unless they're comedies like yeah, you're right, Encino Man or whatever. Right. And, and so again, it's like imagine, imagine if a, a an ancient human were given access to a starship. You know, certainly the brain capacity is there to learn um, these things, but maybe the physiology hadn't evolved enough. And so that's like I think the suggestion behind the Ferengi at this point in Star Trek, and I think it's just completely missing it missed and and they do utterly completely yeah and, and the other thing that i really didn't like was the and i i think now when you look at it, it just seems creepy is the whole the women and that's another reason why they reminded me of trump is because i don't, I don't make this political but the whole thing was like your women wear clothes you know and 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 then they cut to Riker, and he has a smile on his face. <laughs> I mean, I feel I don't know. <clears throat> Emma thinks Riker's creepy, and now I'm beginning to understand why. Well, <laughs> the yeah, again, yeah, I think that it's just wrong, man. The Ferengi get get become better as the series goes along, and they do become a, they do become a beloved uh, other species or or formidable, not formidable, but a beloved like outsider member of Star Trek. You know, like they're they not stay comical. They really always stay comical. They never. It's just fascinating to see how completely how, just the mistakes they made and how nobody was able to uh, to see it. I don't. I don't, I don't know. It's but, just, at the it's same, but at the same time, it you know it begs the question: like, not every uh, not every civilization has to be a uh, very serious, uh, you know, humanitarian. Well, I'm, I'm even using humanitarian, but like, uh, you know, like very uh, generous sort of like species. Like it, you know, it it does speak to something realistic at the same time. 
but while it is comical, it does speak to the possibilities in the universe are endless. You know, like you might have species that uh, evolved in in a variety of different ways, and so it's a good attempt. I just I just think that like yeah, it's a little too comical at this point, um, and it finds its edge and it finds its refinement finally uh, later in DS9 when we are more intimate with the Ferengi and we get to see them, you know, from that day-to-day -day life perspective and, you know, I, again, I think it, yeah, at this point though, it's like, it is laughable. You can't take Damon Bach too seriously because of his, um, the way he acts, like, basically. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Star Trek works best when they have an adversary. I mean, the original series had the Klingons, a long-running adversary, as you could say. Next Generation really started to click when the board came on. And, you know, you always sort of... And, and the Romulans. The Romulans also became were reintroduced and became effective adversaries. So you had the Romulans and the Borg. DS9 had the Cardassians, and then later on the, um, the Jem'Hadar and, and the Founders and all that. And, and that was, you could argue that was the problem with Voyagers. Voyager, you know, in the beginning they had the, I think they were called the Kazon. And, and um, they were also, it was also another species that just seemed from the very beginning, it just, it just didn't work from their design, the actual, you know, design and look of the, of the race to what, what were they about? Uh, at least the Ferengis, I think, the way they were portrayed was wrong. I think there, there was, there was, uh, um, there was, a, you can say that there was some thought into what they represented, but they, it, it, they just didn't have, they, they just didn't think it through all the way. I mean, there was potential, but, um, and looking back on, on these early episodes, I think that is really interesting to me is to see the, the potential that the Ferengi had and, and just how it was just, squandered away i mean uh yeah as a kid i remember the thing that stood stood out about this episode um what i focused on was the the historical aspects of picard uh and you know seeing the stargazer was really cool and like hearing about the picard maneuver and things like that and then watching it again um the only thing i could think about was i liked again it it those those same <clears throat> themes kind of like again hit the notes uh, the same notes emotionally uh, for me, but the Ferengi were just kind of like a plot device. They were just a vehicle, actually, you know, to to bring this plot about. It could have easily have been Romulans. It could have easily have been Klingons. It could have easily have been mm -hmm. any, any adversary that we've met uh, up until this point. What did you think? And I don't know if there's a specific reason. Maybe it was stated in the first episode, which I didn't. I didn't see. With the Ferengi, but what's the reasoning behind them being whited out? That you don't see the rest of their ship. That they always seem to be when they're communicating. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know if it's explicitly stated, and that does change in later seasons. Because if I if I recall correctly, in season two or season three, there is another Ferengi episode in which Quark is the captain or the daemon of the ship, but not as Quark as another Ferengi. Oh, the actor, right? Uh -huh. The actor, um, and you actually see the ship's bridge which is a weird configuration in and of itself. But um, I think at this point, yeah, the Ferengi uh, don't want the Federation to know much about them, so their computer masks masks out, masks out the backgrounds. I was reading in the... Uh, <clears throat> well, for the record, 
where I get my facts is the uh, I'll show you here the Star Trek Next Generation Companion. Very nice. Um, no Next Generation fan should be without it. Uh, the book states that there were many scenes that were planned and never filmed on the Frankie ship. And um, that would have been uh, interesting to see at this point in the series, you know, to flesh out the Ferengi by seeing what their ship was like. I mean, certainly in the original series, when the Romulans were introduced, uh, we did see small sections of the ship that um, Mark Leonard was, was commanding. And, and you, you could extrapolate things about the Romulans just by seeing how their ship is, is designed. You know, what do they emphasize? What do they not emphasize? And the same thing with the Ferengi. On the, in this episode, we only really see one room. It's kind of a, a nondescript room, and, and uh, the focus is, is very tight. So you really see very little of the room. So you get no sense of, 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 of the Ferengi at all. Right. So Meanwhile, right. the design of their ship is. Yeah. It's, it's frustrating we, to me. I don't think we ever see much of the inside of a Ferengi vessel. And uh, the, the design of the Ferengi vessel itself is pretty unique um, and interesting. But also, it's just it's as big as the, the Enterprises. It's a huge. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> yeah, now I have to wonder because obviously the Enterprise has an enormous crew because the ship is, is geared towards exploration. The Ferengi have a ship that seems to be almost equal in size. So I'm guessing they have a large crew as well. What are What is all that crew for? Is it just for labor in terms of like maybe... I bet there's less crew on the Ferengi ship and more storage. Is so, like, you know, because I, I would imagine that, you know, they're going on the... the while the Federation's exploring, the Ferengi are also exploring, but they're trying to collect, you know, goods. And so, oh, you know, I never thought of that. I mean, just that's my guess, but I don't know if that's a, I don't, we'd have right. to get a, a technical. <laughs> You're absolutely right. I'd never even thought of that. <laughs> that's true. That's so, true. Yeah. They're, they're just fancy looking cargo vessels. <laughs> they're like formidable looking cargo What vessels. do you think of their ships? Do you like their ships? I I never liked or loved uh, the Frankie design. Uh, in fact, I thought it was backwards. Like I thought they should be flying in the, the way that they're. Yes, I I, I agree with you. Yeah, like so I I don't know, but it it, it is like a unique design. I'll say that. Um, it's wrong in every way. I I feel bad for. It was just a total. It's just a big <laughs> failure for them. It was, oh yeah. really bad. Oh well, the Frankie do get. Do get updated? Maybe the new we get validation uh, later in DS9. Yeah. And maybe yeah. the new Star Trek series will reintroduce them in a different way. You know, more more like Quark wow. and cooler and cooler designed ships. We'll see. <laughs> At least the uniforms. I never really liked the uniform. I'll show my figure again. Um, you know, the animal skins. I thought that was a little. I don't know. It just seems. Yeah, and the, those little things they have behind the. Is that curtain they wear? And this is the Ferengi, you know, the Ferengi Exploration Corps or whatever they are. They're more militaristic. We do see later on, you know, Quark wears a suit. Right, yeah. And uh, and, and he seems, yeah, it looks more 
normal or acceptable or viable or whatever. But but this, these guys with their animal skins and 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 you know the, this this jewelry behind their head, it just seemed a little. I don't know. It just it just seemed like a mix match that didn't go well together. And um, well, I think it just plays back to your point of. They, we don't really know what the Frenchy are trying to say, you know, through their design, like what the what they were trying to say through the design of the Ferengi, or or at least that intention didn't come across very clearly. No, no, I don't think so at all. Um... So, so the episode ends with you know Picard saying something to the extent of uh, you know let the past remain in the past, you know. So that I think the moral of this episode is that you can't dwell too long. <laughs> if you're a Starship captain, you can't dwell on failed decisions uh, or things that didn't work out in your past. You can only learn from them and keep moving forward. And I think that uh, is the ultimate uh, lesson. And the Ferengi are just an interesting side component. Um, and again, well, so going back to your earlier point, like Damon Bach, uh, there is an important plot point. Apparently, the unknown starship that the Stargazer encountered back in the day uh, was, sons, right. was a Ferengi vessel, and uh, Daemon Bach's son was the the commander of that vessel and was killed. And so there's his whole motivation is like he spent his whole life uh, looking for this revenge, uh, as he calls it, a blood revenge, an appropriate blood revenge on Picard. And again, there's something... Again, <laughs> it just blows up in Damon Bach's face. It's like not even really a great threat. Like, um, you know, the the Enterprise crew is able to dispatch the threat very quickly, and Picard is uh, at most inconvenienced and embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so as far as episodes concern, episodes go, this one was interesting, but it's not one that'll rank really high as far as I'm concerned you know, among my favorites. Um, I, um, yeah, it's not a favorite episode of mine, but it's, uh, it's one that I don't, I mean, I enjoyed watching it now. If it's on TV, I'll watch it. I like, uh, it's, it's hokey. You know, I, I think everyone, I think they could have caught on to the whole, you know, Picard has a, headache because of something to do with these Ferengi a lot <laughs> quicker than they did. Um, also, the whole thing about the, the faked log entries that uh, Damon Bach somehow put into the computer, uh, it seems to me that somehow the ship's computer, or, or at least data, would have picked up on the fact that they were just sort of, you know, that it was artificially created um, <laughs> a lot faster. I, uh, that uh, you know that, that that whole aspect of the episode just seemed to be something just to you know throw in there just to grind the plot a little bit further, but but I I liked seeing I don't know I thought Pat Patrick Stewart did a good job. I yeah, liked, the performance you know, great. I agree with you. Um, him okay. and Crusher were were cool too. You know, it was another episode where uh, him and Crusher could exchange you know dialogue and you can kind of see uh a little bit of uh something i mean there there's a there's definitely a relationship there that's beginning to develop 
that unfortunately never, never, it doesn't really come, come yeah. to fruition until much, much later. And I would say much too late uh, to even care. Um, but in those early episodes, I think you definitely see the, you know, the format, you know, Crusher at one point says, uh, you know, do you want to talk about it? I'm here. And, you know, Picard does. And, and he actually becomes quite anguished about the whole thing. And I, I was kind of surprised. I was like, wow, Picard opening up to Crusher. This is, this is really, I would have liked to have seen this continue on the show. Yeah, there is this moment of vulnerability. And like, you know, again, um, this is a side effect, I think, of the mind control uh, device, you know, the mind control that's happening to, to Picard. Um, I do think that um, there, there, I want to, I want to point out a few things that I think uh, Galdu Scott would be, would have been interested in about the episode. We don't have him here, but the, the Wesley sweater era is over. <laughs> so this is the first time we see Wesley wearing his uh, acting ensign uniform and it has like I think all the different command you know it has the, the different colors represented on the top portion of the uniform uh, that would normally be represented on the bottom portion of the uniform the uniform is gray so uh, that was an interesting thing about this episode is that we do see Wesley's uh, wardrobe evolve from sweaters to this um, and then what do you think the writers were trying to say in that one scene where he comes into the um, Sick bay and informs uh, Counselor Troy and uh, Doctor Crusher about what he his theory is about the brain waves. And then when they leave, he makes this comment just to himself, and he's like, uh, "You know, adults, uh, adults, like sighing almost. Like, what do you think yeah. that's all about?" Um, they just needed to give Wesley a little bit of extra dialogue there, I guess. I, a little credibility, maybe. Or I something. mean, I mean, yeah, they, they kind of just ignore... I mean, I guess there have been moments where, you know, Wesley is clearly ahead of everybody, and the adults are just kind of ignoring him. And I think he's just finally voicing his frustration over that. And and <laughs> it, it, it is, I guess, I, I guess this was a criticism launched at the, up at the show in the beginning. And I didn't really... It didn't really bother me all that much back then. And it doesn't really bother me that much now. I think it's, I think it's kind of amusing. It is amusing. I think it is, it is funny though, that Wesley is able to, <laughs> you have this like extremely well-trained crew, you know, these yeah. to be the best of the best, you know, they're serving on a flagship uh, starship and, you know, they're, this is like uh, the equivalent of, uh, I guess, like what you would call like the Google or the Apple <laughs> <laughs> crew, you know, you want to get the best programmers and the, you know, the top right. uh, people. And here you have this, like, you know, this, this like... He's using a, a Commodore or something. Yeah. He's constantly showing them up, which is uh, which is yeah. really interesting. So, um, and that, I just want to point yeah. out on, on Sequest, can we mention Sequest on this? Yeah. Why on not? Sequest, they, they did this quite unsuccessfully with their character. Uh, it's Poor obvious. Brandis. What? <laughs> Poor Jonathan Brandis. Poor Jonathan Brandis, the late Jonathan <laughs> Brandis. Um, uh, his character was obviously a ripoff of Wesley, uh, right down to to this, which is that he would be the one who would figure out uh, 
what Darwin is trying to say <laughs> and save the whole planet. I mean, nobody else on the on the submarine could figure it out, but this came you know, fascinating, you know, fascinating thing about Sequest and Darwin is that did you know there are cetacean navigators on Yes, the- I the- was yes. Yes. <laughs> I don't. Did I give you that book? No, it's in the Star Trek Next Generation Technical Manual. Is it? Yes. It, okay, so I want to uh, kind did of... I, did I give you my tech manual? No, you did not. I want to remind you that this is a revelation we came to many years ago in high you remember school. remember that? That was mind-blowing, man. It was in high school. I brought the technical manual and I said, what the heck is this? <laughs> there, were, there were whales. This is in a time, by the way, before... Um, before the internet was like a resource like it is today where you could just could could you uh, hold on a minute i'm being (laughs) called away (laughs) so just to kind of tell everyone what's going on in the in the forward section of the enterprise if you look on the technical in the technical manual uh it shows a little tiny section and there are uh, navigators that are either dolphins or whales i'm not sure exactly what they are there but they're um they're uh, definitely assi- somehow they assist in the navigation of yes yes i remember that <laughs> so that's a that's definitely an interesting um there's a whole section of the ship just devoted to them just you know and that's because of star trek 4 right i don't know well, i don't actually don't know the full story on it no well, that's because of star trek 4 <laughs> so now there's a whale on every Ship so that in case they encounter this probe again, I guess. Right, they can communicate. They can go tell it what to go do it with itself. <laughs> they need only the whales can tell that probe what to go do with itself. You know what? What did you go? You know. Do I don't know. Itself? We're gonna have to look into it and get back to to the audience on the next episode. But yeah, the whale navigators or the cetacean navigators are very interesting. Um, I I think that about covers our thoughts for uh, the episode, the battle. Do you have anything else to add, Doctor? Um, did I mention Troy was useless? No, oh my gosh, she was not. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, uh, <laughs> uh, it looks like the Doctor's running out of ideas. <laughs> I think that's it. We're uh, done. Oh well, yeah. I I do want to mention. I, I thought it was very interesting. The transporter of the Ferengi have a little swirl to them. Oh yeah, that was a really cool effect. Different, a different effect to me. Also, that um, how the how the transporter actually works on different in different civilizations. Um, like I think the Romulans have a. It's always been a green. There's like a greenish right. color to it, which is very interesting thematically. And then you know. Uh, well, I, I, it's just different for every tech. You know, it's it's cool to see how like there's no universal. The 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 creators of Star Trek: The Next Generation actually thought, well, why would the transporter be the same? You know, the effect be the same for different uh, cultures and different uh, species. And I like that. That's a cool feature. Yeah. Which is your favorite transporter effect, Federation ones? Star Trek Two or Star Trek Three has the best. Both uh, sound design wise and visually, I think it's just this like. Sound design wise, it's it, it looks like they're splitting your atoms apart into. <laughs> like, it looks it's like stars all over. 
it's very powerful and then that sound is just like really intense i love that sound <laughs> it starts, the, one. the sound starts way before the actual effect and it and it keeps going it echoes right out you know past the effect it's just pretty it's pretty impactful i think those are my favorites i was disappointed that they didn't continue that into the next generation I loved, uh, there was an episode of The Reading Rainbow or something where they actually went behind the scenes of Star Trek The Next Generation. I, I remember that. Yeah. And they, so the, the transporter. That was late back, in the series too. Yeah. That? that was late into Next Generation. They yeah, waited a long time for that. But they showed, uh, they showed uh, how the transporter effect is. It's glitter in a glass of water and it's yeah. glitter and they, they filmed that yeah. and that's what they use for the transporter effects, which I thought that was very cool. Yeah. <laughs> I also have a soft spot for the Star Trek one. The, the, warm. Oh, yeah, that's right. And it's just like warm and you have all this stuff inside. <laughs> I don't know why I've always had a soft spot for that one. Those, it's so weird. Those are one. definitely good ones too. You're absolutely the Star Trek. The Star Trek two and three ones are the best. <laughs> and, um, yeah. Star Trek two really, I think set, um, aesthetically a standard that to this day is, uh, is really um, strong. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know if a lot of that credit goes to Nicholas Meyer and his production team, but I, I would imagine it does. Uh, yes. Because there was such a dramatic change from the motion picture to Star Trek II, and I really think that that look stuck, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's a look that you really, I think is iconic uh, for Star Trek post-series, uh, you know, like the movie era. And hopefully it will return. That's what the rumors are that we're going to go back to the, that era. So it'll be very interesting to see. <laughs> all right. Well, I guess I guess that's all we have to say about the battle. Okay. And then the next episode is going to be hide and cue, uh, and hopefully we'll be uh, uh, we'll have uh, communications reestablished with uh, Bajor and Tarak Nor, and we'll have uh, Goldie Scott on here. Uh, the Ferengi did something to the communications, did they? Yeah, I think there's some kind of weird subspace interference going on. And, you know, sometimes uh, there's some interesting things that happen over there on Bajor. There's, like, these communication blackouts. The Cardassians might be up to some, you know. Perhaps. Good, yeah, but rest assured the Federation has dispatched uh, some uh, some envoys, uh, you know, and ambassadors. The Corps are on their way to fix, yeah, uh, rectify everything. Sure, uh, things are okay on Bajor. <laughs> All right, so this is Starfleet Boy over now. And again, we invite you, um, our audience, to comment, uh, to uh, participate. And if you want to be on an episode, uh, please reach out to us and uh, through our YouTube channel or uh, starfleetboy at gmail.com so we can schedule that. Thank you. Live long and prosper. Live long and prosper. Have a good night. <laughs>